Okay, Ephesians chapter 6 is where you're going to want to turn, and you're going to want to go ahead and mark Genesis chapter 3. So Ephesians chapter 6, Genesis chapter 3, those are the two places that, that we'll be hanging today. Okay, so this is week three, kind of in a mini-series. Mini just Ephesians just kind of sets itself up this way uh, as it kind of leads us into spiritual warfare. And so we've spent really the last two weeks, this has been my goal, is to kind of back up from, from Ephesians and to try to give a broad biblical view of, of spiritual warfare, to kind of fill in some of the blanks that Ephesians doesn't exactly tell us. And so we've backed up and we, and we tried to kind of fill in these blanks. And here's a couple of things that we've said, maybe a couple of the primary points, is that we are in a spiritual war. I mean, this is the idea. Ephesians 6 is telling us that there is active warfare going on. So, so we've said stuff like this, that there is a conflict that's, that's raging. So, so we're in the middle of a conflict. Now we've kept it in the middle of, and kind of in the context of Ephesians, to where we've kind of set it in this idea of, okay, so, so here are gospel-produced things in us. So we've talked about forgiveness, kindness, all these things. But wouldn't we all agree that when somebody wrongs you, it's really, really hard to forgive them? That that when somebody cuts you off, it's really hard to be kind to them? I mean, that's hard work to do those things, right? That is not easy. Okay, think about in the context of parenting. That Okay, it says to the dads, it says to train your, your kids in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Don't provoke them to anger. That can be really difficult. I mean, think about marriage. The, the, men are to love and lay down their, their lives for their wives. And, and women are to, to jump behind their leader and to joyfully follow the one God's place. Those things are hard, right? And so although we would look at that and say, okay, it's God's design. We, we like it. We agree. We're in. Let's do this. We would all say that in the practical reality in our life, it is difficult for these things to express themselves. God's design gets to be really difficult to live out. And so the question becomes, why is that so difficult? Why is it so difficult just for you to be kind to somebody, right? Why is that hard work? Here's Paul's answer. Ephesians 6, verse 10. He says this about it. This is why it's hard. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the devil's schemes. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we do wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So here's what he's saying. The reason it's so difficult is because there is a real war with a real devil over real people, and it makes it really, 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 really difficult to live out the gospel. This is the idea. And so we we try to keep spiritual warfare in the context of your daily life. Everybody wants to gravitate to the crazy and extreme when the reality is this is you waking up tomorrow and trying to live out the gospel. Clinton Arnold has done a lot of just theological heavy lifting when it comes to spiritual warfare. And here's what he says about it. He says, spiritual warfare is a way of characterizing our common struggle as Christians. This is what spiritual warfare is. The common struggle. Spiritual warfare is an all-encompassing. It's all-encompassing. It touches every area of our lives. 
It touches our families, our relationships, the church, our neighborhoods, our communities, and our places of employment. This is spiritual warfare. It's this daily conflict that you find yourself in, making it really hard to live out the gospel. Okay, we've talked about how spiritual warfare, this war that we're in, is the clash of these two kingdoms. That you have got the unseen kingdom of God, unseen and expanding kingdom of God, colliding with and defeating and ultimately crumbling this unseen kingdom of Satan. So now we've stressed in the middle of that that this isn't physical warfare, right? That this is, there's a reason it's called spiritual warfare. The stress is on the spiritual. And so this is not go get your guns. This is know your Bible, right? And so this is a spiritual war. It's the clash of these two kingdoms. This is why in, in John 18, um, Jesus is being questioned by Pilate and he says, listen, if my kingdom were of this world, my, my guys would be fighting. They'd grab their weapons and they'd go to war. But it's not of this world. It's a spiritual kingdom. So it's the clash of these two kingdoms. Okay, now this is where it gets interesting for you and I. We find ourselves on the friction point. Where, where these two kingdoms are colliding, that's where your life is lived. This is where your life plays out. This is why William Gurnall, he was a Puritan that wrote over 1,400 pages on these 10 or 11 verses. He said, when you find God on one side, Satan is sure to be on the other. And in between those, you've got men and women. This, this conflict, it makes it personal. I mean, you're in the friction point. You're where these two things collide. This war is inevitable for you. You can't avoid it. You can't go around it, through it. Oh, you, it you're going to live in it. This is where life is played out. So, it, so it's inevitable. It's a part of the daily ground. This is why we said that when you come out of the womb, you are welcomed into war. This war on three fronts with the flesh, this inner component doing battle against our desires. You've got the world, this outer component, cementing and, and solidifying these desires of the flesh. And then you've got this um, over us component where the devil and his forces are crushing down on us. This is the war we all find ourselves in. Okay, now, now today is the turning point. We've kind of defined all that. This is the war. Now we're trying to answer this question. We're going to spend a couple of weeks here. How do you live in this war? I, like, how do you actually, like, the, the imperative in this, in this passage, four times it's mentioned in the first three or four verses, to stand, to resist, to withstand the devil. So how do we do that? I mean, how do we win, how do we wage this war in such a way that we actually win? I mean, how do we actively fight in this thing in such a way that we don't get shot and killed in the middle of it? Okay, that, that's what we're trying to go after here. This is the turning point for us. Okay, so look at verse 10, and, and he starts to walk us into this. How do we start to make progress in this war? I mean, how do we stand? How, how do we do this? And here's the first thing he tells us in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Okay, so right off the bat, Paul is telling us that resistance, for you to resist is dependent upon, it requires you to run after the strength of God. It requires you, it requires you to posture your life under the strength of God. Okay, so, so here's what Paul's saying. You do not have the capacity to stand in this battle. You don't have the capacity to do that. You don't have the sort of strength that it takes. Like there's all sorts of debate. Look at verse 12, Ephesians 6, 12. You see that verse? There's all sorts of debate over what these things mean. I mean, what are the rulers and what, what are the cosmic forces over this present darkness? And what are these spiritual forces of evil? And like, what are these authorities? What are these things? And here's the truth. Paul doesn't tell us. He, he doesn't go in to theology of what each of these things are. But I, I think what he's getting at in these passages is these things are more powerful than you are. 
Apart from God, you're dead in this. Apart from God, you are beaten before you get on the battlefield. You're whipped before the war begins. You're conquered before the conflict starts. Apart from God, this is your fate. Okay, now John Calvin, when he was commenting on these verses, here's what he said about it. I'm commenting on this passage, and I think this is really interesting. On on Ephesians 6.12, he says, He means that, Paul means that our difficulties are far greater than if we had to fight against men. Okay, so it's not against flesh and blood. It's against these rulers and authorities and powers. And Like, this is a more difficult battle than if we were fighting men. He goes on to say, There, we resist human strength. When we fight against men, we're resisting human strength. He said, sword as opposed to sword. Man contends with man. Force is met by force and skill by skill. But here, the case is very different. For our enemies are such that no human power can withstand them. This is the idea. You don't have a chance. You don't have the capacity to win the conflict. You you don't have the sort of resources and weapons that are required for the war. You don't possess those things. And this is why this idea of Christus victory, we covered this a couple of weeks ago. In, In Colossians 2 where it says that Christ on the cross, what looked like a humiliating loss for him was actually victory for him. On the cross, Jesus disarms his enemies. He literally like declaws them, defangs them. And then it goes on to say that he leads his enemies in this triumphal procession. And all the people in the Roman world would know what that looked like. When you've got a, a, a victorious Roman army coming home to a celebrating city, the general would, would lead his army in and behind his army would be the spoils of war and their defeated um, subjects, Right? This is the idea. And, and okay, so catch this. Paul's bringing our attention right off the bat that we do not have the capacity, that we are dependent upon a victorious Christ who fights and wins our battles for us. And our job is to posture ourselves underneath Christus Victor, who is disarmed and disrobed and, and processed in this defeated foe. Okay, this is where our strength comes from. Okay, now think about this. When I read that, um, I instantly think that seems a little bit abstract. I mean, that seems, um, okay, like I get what you're saying. I just don't know how that plays out. Okay, so I want to help you with this and see what does it mean to strengthen yourself in the Lord, right? What does it mean for this abstract principle to look like? What does that look like in practical terms? Okay, look at verses um, 11 and 13. I think he helps us with this. Verse 11, he's just said, strengthen yourself in the, in, in the Lord and the strength of his might. And then he says this, and I think this is how you do that. You put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the devil's schemes. Verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God. This is how you strengthen yourself in the Lord. Okay, so this is maybe the second thing we could say about this conflict. That, okay, so first of all, that it requires the strength of God. And the strength of God, we, we get that, we move into that. Resistance requires us to run after the resources of God. It's dependent upon the resources of God. Okay, so you could say it this way. If you want to stand in this sort of a battle, if you want to be able to resist, to set up defense, and to stand against Satan and his plots and ploys, it requires you to run after the battle-tested resources of God. This is what it means to strengthen yourself in the Lord. Okay, now, now Paul calls these resources the armor of God. Okay, this is what these resources are. So look at verse 11, and let's just make a couple of points about this armor. Okay, first of all, it says this. 
to put on the whole armor of God. You see that? So the armor is whose? The armor is God's, right? It's the whole armor of God. So it's God's armor. This armor is, is God's. Okay, now, now think about how this plays out. There is no doubt that, that Paul is looking at a Roman soldier. He is, he is in prison as he writes this. So there is no doubt that he's got these theological ideas, these, these weapons of warfare, and he starts to pin them on a, a, a Roman soldier readied for battle. Okay, there's no doubt that he's using this imagery. Okay, but here's what I want you to see as we read through these things. That this is not the primary object. Okay, so, so these weapons aren't primarily a Roman's armor. It is primarily God's armor, his character, who God is. Okay, so l- let me kind of make this make sense to you and going back to some Old Testament here. In Exodus 15, this will be up on the verse, uh, on the screen for you. Um, the Bible says this, that the Lord, like, he is, he is a warrior. The Lord is his name. So the Bible's gonna call the Lord a warrior. I mean, think about that. This is the imagery that Paul's starting to bring forward into Ephesians 6. That God, this picture of God as a warrior. Okay, now, now watch his weapons of war that Isaiah talks about. Okay, this is going to be up on the screen for you. So you've got God as a warrior. Here are his weapons. When he is ready for war, here's what he's carrying. Isaiah eleven five, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Isaiah 59, 17. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful. This is going to be the, the, the gospel of peace. How beautiful. Um, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Isaiah 49, 2. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. Okay, so you get this idea of the armor. Paul, Paul is not primarily basing his armor off of a Roman soldier. He is primarily basing this armor on a warrior God who has made himself ready for war. So so this armor that he's talking about, this is a reflection of the character of God. Okay, so these are his resources, and here's the beauty of it. He begins to give those to us through the gospel. God's armor given to us, bestows to us through the gospel. So if you want to think about what these what, what these weapons of war, what these, what this armor is, this is a way for you to think about it. When you think about the armor of God, it is all that God gives us in the gospel. It's what we have and what we are in the gospel. This is the armor of God. Okay, now Tim Keller, he, he's really been helpful for me just kind of studying through this. Here's how he defines the armor. He says the armor is essentially the benefits, the privileges, and the freedoms you have in the gospel. Now think about this, the benefits, privileges, the freedoms, that the armor is what you are and what you have in the gospel. Now, okay, Puritans, they, they would tell their people this. They would say Christians far too often live below their privileges. Okay, now when Christians live below their privileges, when, when they ready themselves for war, they get worked, Right? Because they don't know what they have and what they are in the gospel. They don't know what, what they've been given. They, they don't know the armor that God's bestowed to them. So they, so they go to war without the helmet. They go to war without the shield. They go without the belt. They don't know what they've been given and so they get worked. 
Okay, now, now this is my hope for us over the next few weeks. As we work through these, these, this armor, these pieces of armor, is that God would be so gracious to you and I in helping us see the privileges we have in the gospel. That God would help us see what we have and what we are in the gospel and we would wear these things as our armor in this war. Okay, this is the hope of the next few weeks that I would do that for you. So, so this armor is God's armor. Okay, now look at what it says right before it says the armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God. So this is complete armor. Okay, this is, this is whole armor. Okay, now look in verse 13. Okay, you see that? Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that, that you can withstand in the evil day. Let's talk about the evil day. Well, what is the evil day? That is the day... That, that's the day when the bombs start dropping, when the bullets start flying, when the air raid sirens are on. This, this is the day when temptations are turned up, when, when accusations are accelerated, right? Th- this is the day where, where despair sets in, where z- anxiety just feels overwhelming to us, when tragedy strikes, when suffering hits, when disappointment settles over you. This is what the day of evil is. It is when Satan, the world, the, the flesh, it's when all these things work in a concerted effort to be abnormally oppressive to be abnormally weighty. This is what the day of evil is. It is especially difficult days when life weighs on you and grinds on you. Now, now here's the question. How do you stand in that day? And Paul's response is, you take the whole armor of God. It, it covers everything that needs covering. It protects everything that needs prov- protecting. It provides and resources you with everything you need to survive, everything you need to set up resistance and stand. But here's what that means. You can't pick and choose the armor. You've got to get it all and you've got to get it on. Okay, now, now here's the first thing he says in, in verse 11. Because you've got the whole armor, the armor is God's, and he tells you this, to put it on. You've got to put this stuff on. It does you no good to know what it is if it's not on you. Okay, if you want to think about this in terms of, it, it does you no good to know the definition of what these things are if you have no idea how they apply to life, how they affect life. Okay, it, it does you no good to memorize things and not know things, right? Welcome to the life of a college student taking a test, right? It does you no good to do that when you're talking about the spiritual warfare, this armor. It does you no good to know what they are, even to be able to explain kind of what they do if you do not set these things on yourself. So let me just beg you, and let, and let me just preface it with this. This is hard work to do that. It is hard work to take this armor that God gives you in the gospel and then put it on as arm. I mean, that's hard work. It takes work to do that. Okay, so now we're to verse 14. Here's what Paul says. And we're just going to get through one of of the pieces of armor today Then we're going to try to work through the rest of them um, in the next two weeks. Verse 14. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. This is remedy number one in the war. This is resource number one in the war. He says this, here's what you've got to do. You've got to fasten on this belt of truth. This is step one in the war. 
This is the first thing you've got to be able to do. Okay, now now think about this imagery of a Roman soldier. Okay, you've got a Roman soldier, and, and Paul's looking at this. Okay, so he's, he's making applications of this guy's weapons and his armor. And he's talking about this belt of truth. Now think about the belt of belt on a, on a Roman soldier. This isn't like an offensive or a defensive weapon, right? Everything else in the armor has got, kind of got an offensive or a defensive feel to it. This doesn't. I mean, un- unless your dad was really big and strong, he didn't kill you with the belt, right? I mean, some of you would wonder about that. But, but unless... Unless he is just Superman, that's not how it plays out. You don't kill people with belts. I mean, when when bullets start flying and bombs start dropping, the guys in the trenches don't say, hey, bring out the secret weapon. Who's got the belt? They they don't do that, right? That's not how the the battle plays out. It's not an offensive or, or defensive weapon. Think about it this way. The belt is a foundational piece of the armor. It is what everything else is built on. The belt is what, like a Roman soldier would wear this robe or this tunic. He would cinch the belt down, tuck his robe in that belt so, so he could, he could move. He wouldn't be impeded in, in the battle. Okay, the belt had, um, the, the place where the sword would be housed. So, so this is foundational equipment. Now think about how this relates to truth. I think what Paul's saying here is when you look at truth, it is the foundational piece of armor that you have to wear. And to put on. If you want to think about the rest of, of the pieces of armor, everything else is built on truth or pulled from truth. Everything else is an application of truth or it's something we're to believe about truth. This is everything else in the armor, right? And so this is a foundational piece of equipment. Okay, now, now let me try to walk through in a couple of different points on, on why truth is so important. So let's just start with the problem when there is no truth in a place. When there is no truth, bad things happen in a hurry. Okay, now now think about this. Think about how destructive a lie is, even though it's not true, right? A lie is, is something false. But think about how destructive it is when a lie is believed. Okay, so, so I'll put this in the context of my wife and I. I love my wife. I really do. I mean, I've got eyes for one woman I married way above my head. I mean, I, I've got a wonderful wife. I love that lady. She, she is a good, good wife to me. Um, every now and then, I'll try to write her some poetry, right? And uh, I mean, it's hard to express in words how much I love that lady, right? Call me a sissy. You ought to try it sometime, though, right? Okay, so, so I love my wife. Now, imagine if today somebody walks up to her and says, uh, Laura, um, your husband, he loves another woman. What if in that moment she believes that? It doesn't matter if it's not true. It doesn't matter if it's a lie. In that moment, if she believes that, everything about our relationship changes. If she believes that lie, how she feels about me changes. The context of our marriage changes. The atmosphere in our home changes. Everything changes if she believes that. We're going to think about this. This is how destructive, this is how powerful a lie is in the hands of a serpent. This is how powerful it is. Okay, now go with me to Genesis chapter 3. And I want to show you how this plays out. What happens when a serpent has a powerful lie that he puts before people? Okay, now in the context of Genesis chapter 3, it goes like this. Genesis 1, God creates. 
Okay, Genesis 1 and 2. He creates, he got, he's, creates man and a woman. He places them in a beautiful and glorious garden. In that garden, he has given them everything they need to have a satisfying and joy-filled life. He has provided them everything they need, right? He's told them to, to work it and to keep it, be fruitful and multiply. Make the rest of the earth look like this garden. Okay, so he has placed them in a beautiful garden. Everything they need for life and joy. And he's given them one command. Don't eat of that tree. Okay, that, that's just the one you need to stay away from. Okay, now when you get to Genesis chapter 3, the day of evil, right? Ephesians 6, 13. The day of evil has been directed at Adam and Eve. So th- this is a day of evil for them. Temptation turned up. Accusations flying. Lies are being thrown out. This is a day of evil for them. Now watch how this plays out in Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Okay, that's automatically a scary introduction, right? You've got a crafty serpent. Now, the Bible gives us a little better um, picture of that in several places. uh, Revelation chapter 12 calls him a deceiver. This is what Satan does. He deceives people. He uses lies to lure people in. Um, John 8, 44 um, says this about Satan, that he was a murderer from the beginning. He's got no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. He's speaking out of the character of his heart. This is Satan. These are the plots and ploys of Satan revolve around deception. Plotting and planning lies for you, right? This is is Satan. This is this cunning serpent that we're introduced to. Now read on with me. So this crafty serpent, he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Okay, can you see what's implied there? What's implied is, are you serious? I mean, are you crazy? I mean, did God really say that to you? I mean, is he kind of holding out on you here? I mean, you really think this God is a good God? You really think he has your best in mind? You really think he hears you? I mean, come on. Okay, so so this is the implication. Then verse 2, look at verse 2. He's just casted doubt on the character and goodness of God. And then in verse 2 it says this. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it. And God did not say they couldn't touch it. Just don't eat it. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Okay, so when you look at verse three, like I automatically get the sense of this is going to be a bad day, right? I mean, so she, she, the day of evil is there. Satan is speaking. Okay, now, and she's automatically just got kind of truth distorted in her mind a little bit. Like, this is what God said, but it's a little bit blurry. It's a little bit distorted. It's a little bit fuzzy for her. Okay, now, and then, and then it's going to go on. Okay, now keep, keep kind of reading here with me. She keeps, and watch this, she keeps listening. She's got distorted fuzzy, blurry truth, and she keeps listening here. Look at verse four. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. I mean, the gloves are off at this point, right? Subtly is out the window. I mean, this is gloves down. I'm punching now. I mean, this is straight up calling God a liar. This is you're naive to believe in God. This is you would be an absolute idiot if you want to follow God. Okay, now I just want you to think about this. What if Eve is seeing clearly in this moment? I mean, what if Eve has actually got truth that, that is clear in her mind? Well, what if she is seeing all this clearly? I mean, you've already got kind of fuzzy truth, but even more than fuzziness of the truth, she has missed the character of God behind the commands, right? 
Okay, what if, what if everything is seen clearly and Eve just says this? You're a serpent and you're talking to me. That's freaky, right? I mean, that's, that's a weird day right off the bat. I mean, so, so you're a serpent and you're talking. And even worse than that, you're a serpent who is talking in such a way that you're trying to, to defame the glory of God, that you're trying to call into question the goodness and faithfulness of God. You, you're trying to imply that God does not have my best in heart. You, you're trying to imply that God does not care for me, that God does not love me. This is the God who created me and put me in a great garden, and you're trying to call all that into question. I don't buy it. I mean, I can see really clearly good and evil. You're on the wrong side. I can really clearly see truth from error. You're speaking lies. I can really easily see this whole thing play out. I'm on God's team. What if she says that? How much different does, does Genesis chapter 3 play out? But she doesn't. She keeps listening. Truth is fuzzy. The character of God behind the truth, even more blurry. She keeps listening. Okay, now look at what she goes on. Look at what Satan goes on to tell her. Verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of, eat of this, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now think about this. A lie is powerful. It's destructive. It doesn't matter if it's true, if you believe it. So, so here's what Satan has done. He has taken the hook that Eve has. He has baited it with a beautiful looking lie and all he's waiting for now is for this believing bite from Eve. See this? He's baited it with a lie, waiting for this believing bite. He doesn't have to wait long. Look at verse 6. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to her eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Satan baits the hook, the beautiful looking life. You can have this fruit. You'll be like, this will be great for you. I mean, follow, this will be sweet tasting to you. And she bites it. Okay, now, now follow this. Your day of evil is coming. Genesis 3 for you is coming. For many of you, you've had it. You're going to have many more of them. The evil days are coming when Satan is going to bait your hook with, for you, a lie that looks really beautiful. And he's just going to wait like a skillful, a skillful angler waiting for the, for the believing bite, waiting for you to, to be suckered in. Like these lies of the serpent, they're dangerous because they don't have to be true for them to be destructive for you. This is what's happening in, in Genesis 3. Okay, so I, I want to make this link for you. That every sin that comes out in a behavior, I mean, think about all the sin that you would say is an external behavior. Every one of those sins are based on you believing and biting a lie of Satan. Every one of them. Every, every sinful external action is based on you believing and biting a lie of Satan. Think about racism. 
Racism is believing the lie that would say this. Because of your color, because of your um, ethnicity, because of your socioeconomic status, because of your political leaning, because of these things, you're worth more than somebody else. That's a lie. I mean, you have to believe a lie to get there. I mean, think about lust. I mean, to, to, to commit lust, to run after lust, you believe a lie. Just like our first parents, truth gets a little bit fuzzy, and, and Satan baits our hook with a beautiful looking lie that you just taste this and it will be sweet to you, right? I mean, this will be good for you. Think about insecurity. Insecurity is believing a lie. That the approval of other people, what other people think about you is ultimately important. I mean, think about, think about eating disorders. In a student ministry, these, these were so rampant. It was crazy. And like listening, like across the desk from, from beautiful young girls, when they look in the mirror, they believe this lie in their words that I am disgusting. That is believing lies. Every sinful behavior is based on you believing Satan's lie. I mean, think about the implications of that. And this is why it is so necessary for you to know what truth is. This is why it's so necessary if you want to stand, if you want to resist. It's why it's so necessary that you fasten on the belt of truth. Without it, you have no potential of seeing right from wrong. You have no capacity to withstand. You have no ability to resist when you can't see here's good, here's evil. Here's truth, here's a lie. Here's joy, here's suffering. You you have no capacity to see that unless you have some sort of a grid by which you can see truth. See, what happens when when you have no truth in your life is you willingly and and joyfully bite the bait as if it is going to be a sweet-tasting thing to you. Okay, so when when you don't have truth, the world falls apart for us. Okay, now here's the beautiful thing. Ephesians 6 doesn't leave us there. It's going to say this. Take up, fasten on this belt of truth that God has provided truth for you. We have the provision of truth that God has come along and he has said clearly, this is good, this is bad. This is truth, this is error. This is good, this is evil. He's clearly said this. Okay, so what is the belt of truth? What is it that we're supposed to take up? The belt of truth is God's gracious provision for you of the word of God. That's truth. It is him graciously saying, here's your Bible. Here are the words of God. Here are the perfect words of God, the joy-creating words of God. Here here are the wisdom-making words of God. Here are the pure words of God. Here are the sustaining words of God. Here they are. Hey, I hope you're doing well. At that point in the sermon on Sunday morning, we had a mic problem that cut the rest of the sermon off, and we felt like what was going to be missing was important enough to go ahead and do a recording Uh, Just to kind of throw this information out to you, this is just me talking, not me preaching. But I wanted to make sure that 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 you had this information in your back pocket um, because the last 10 minutes were really probably the most important part of the sermon as we tried to apply these things. And really, this was our last point as we tried to put on the belt of truth. So we had talked about how there's a major problem in our life when we don't have truth and we can't see truth clearly and that God has given us the scriptures 
and provided us the scriptures as truth for us so we can discern right and wrong, good from bad, you know, error from, from truth. And so the, the last point is we just encouraged our people with practical ways on, on what it means to put on the armor of God in the sense of the belt of truth, what it means to strap on and fasten the belt of truth. And so this is what we said that to kind of go along with this idea of putting on truth, that this is the hard work of reading and applying the scriptures. And this is hard work to read and apply them. And, and so we took each of these parts. We, we started with reading the scriptures and, and talked about how putting on truth means that we are consistently opening up our Bibles and reading them. And, and you know, this is what's so interesting about the idea of just simply reading the scriptures is that we can know that, that when truth is fuzzy in our brain, that we're open and vulnerable to the attacks of, of, of the devil and that we're, we're really open to the day of evil destroying us. So we can know that there's so much at stake with that and yet still think that we're too busy. Isn't, isn't that ama- amazing to kind of watch that play out in your own life? How we can watch a three hour football game and yet when somebody asks us, are we into the word? that we're too busy is the excuse that we'll throw out. And, and so maybe the idea is not that we're too busy, but we're too distracted. It was really interesting. This last week, our staff was at a pastor's luncheon. And in the middle of this luncheon, a guy's talking. And I'm checking my Twitter account. And at that point, Kevin, our, our worship leader, he sends me a text message quoting one of our favorite pastors. And, and this is what he says. One of the greatest uses of Twitter and Facebook, and just fill in whatever it is that you spend a lot of time doing that isn't overly meaningful at the end of the day. One of the greatest uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from lack of time. And, you know, I think you could fill in there the idea of wordlessness, of not opening up your Bible. It's not from lack of time that we, that we fail to do that. It's that we get really distracted on things at the end of the day that aren't that important and aren't that meaningful. And so we're just trying to practically encourage our people to make sure that you're opening up the Bible, that, that you are forming this grace-dependent habit of opening up the Bible and reading your God-given belt of truth. This, this beautiful provision of, of the scriptures. And so we'll just kind of ask this first question. Are, are you doing that? Are you opening up the Bible and are you reading it? Forming this habit. And then the second piece of this is we asked the question or kind of made this statement that, that, that it's not enough just to read the scriptures, but we have to apply the scriptures. And this is, this is kind of this idea of you can read maybe for, for a couple of different reasons. Uh, you can open up your Bible and, and, get into it, read through it. You can read primarily for information. And a lot of people do this. They open up the Bible and they read and they're like a speed reader. It's like they've just opened up the Wall Street Journal and they're digesting as much information as they can. So you can read primarily for information or you can read primarily for transformation. And so what we're encouraging our people to do is not just read for information, but to read for transformation. This is the difference between reading the Bible and allowing the Bible to read you. And so we want our people to be in such a position when they read the scriptures that the Bible is actually reading them, that their life is being submitted to it. It's coming into alignment with it. So so we're we're reading for applying these things for transformation's sake so that the Bible can, can change us and read us. 
And so this is, this is probably the, the important piece of this idea of applying the scriptures that we encouraged our people with. To apply the scriptures in your life means that you have to be a thinker. If you're not a thinker, you're never going to be a good applier. Maybe a different way to say this would be that if you want to live effectively as a Christian, it requires you to be a thinking Christian. And so I'll, I'll, let me give you just a couple of illustrations of this as it relates to sinful tendencies and uh, bendings in our heart. If you just take the idea of worry, worry is a good example of the Bible's antidote is not pressing on the will. It's not using common sense. It, the, the biblical antidote to worry, so if you're a person that really worries, you have an anxiety that runs at peak level often, if that's you, the Bible's remedy for that is for you to be a thinker, for you to open up the Bible, read it, and for you to really think about what you're reading. And because the problem with worry is it, is it assumes and it has a wrong view of God and God's care for his sons and daughters. And so thinking is the antidote for this. And this is why in Matthew chapter 6, here's Jesus' response to worry. He says, therefore, I tell you, so, so you people who are anxious of heart, you that are worried about what you're going to eat, what, what your clothes are going to look like, where you're going to sleep, you, you that anxiety is running at peak level for you. Here's what Jesus says, verse 26, look at the birds of the air. So he's asking them to look at something and then to think about what they're looking at. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly father feeds them. And then he makes this beautiful statement. He says, are you not of much more value than they? And so he, he's using this idea of if God would care for them that way, wouldn't he care for a son or a daughter much more? And so for you who worry, get this view of God. He's sovereign. He's all powerful and he cares for his sons and daughters. And then he goes on to say, consider the lilies of the field. How they grow, they neither, they neither toil nor spin. Yeah, I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. And then he uses the same sort of a logic. But if God, if this is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and gone tomorrow, will he not much more clothe you? And so the biblical remedy for worry is to think about the scriptures. To think about how God or who God is and how he relates to his people. When you open up the Bible, you see verses like this and you think about the birds of the air, the grass of the field and how God would much more so take care of a son or daughter. Now you could apply this across the board. Insecurity is just like that. People who are insecure have a wrong view of God and what he thinks about his children. And so people who are insecure are dominated not by what God thinks about them, but by what other people think about them. Biblical remedy, maybe like a Romans 3, where God is going to say that in Christ we are righteous, that we have been justified in Christ. And so the idea of righteous is that God has examined us and he has approved of us. So in the eyes of the one being, the one king, the one God that really matters, we have been tried and we have been found perfect in his sight. And so this is the biblical remedy to think about these things. So we can't just read the Bible for information. We, we've got to read it thinking. We've got to read it to apply these things. We have to read it um, at the same time, allowing it to read us, expose things in us. 
Okay, so, so the last two things we ended with were really just two questions. And, and we asked the question, number one, how thoroughly are you studying the scriptures? And, and so this is where we really press. Are you studying the scriptures? Are you opening up the Bible and reading it? Number two, how thoroughly are you allowing the scriptures to study you? When's the last time, maybe if you're a dad or a mom or a college student, a teenager, when's the last time you opened up the Bible and the Holy Spirit has, has thrown light on something in there? You've thought about it and it has caused you to repent. It has caused you to confess sin and to turn from a wrong way of thinking to a right way of thinking. Now, when's the last time that's happened? So this is what it means when the Bible starts to study you, the scriptures start to really examine you. These are the sorts of things that happen when, when the Bible starts to shine light inside you, when you start to think through the scriptures. So how thoroughly are you studying the Bible and how thoroughly are the scriptures, the Bible, how thoroughly are they studying you? And lastly, we just try to we just try to create urgency in our heart with this, right? That, that I think a lot of people have heard things like this before, but they never get off the couch. They, they tuck this in their back pocket as they leave, never to reopen it. And so we, we ended with an illustration to try to just settle in some urgency over our heart. And I use this idea of picture a guy that slams through your front door and he, guns are blazing, right? Bullets are flying. I mean, he, he is ready for war. And you're sitting on the couch and you look at him and, and what if your response is, Hey, we've got some, uh, we've got some drinks in the kitchen. If you want to take a second, grab a drink, push pause on this thing that we've got going here. And I'm going to go in the back bedroom, grab the belt of truth and buckle it on. Then we'll be ready to go. It just doesn't work that way, right? When a guy smashes in your front door, he's not going to wait on you. Um, so the field can kind of be level. Um, if he's got an advantage, he'll take advantage of that. And the same is true with our life as it relates to spiritual warfare and specifically the day of evil when the bombs are dropping and the bullets are flying. There's not time at that point to go and fasten on the belt of truth. You're in the war at that point. And, and so we just basically pleaded with our people at the end of the sermon. Don't wait until the war begins and don't wait until the day of evil is at your front door to try to fasten on the belt of truth. But, but today make a grace dependent resolve of creating this habit in your life of, of thoroughly studying the scriptures and then thinking and applying the scriptures. Put a resolve in your life, a grace dependent resolve to start that today. Before the day of evil arrives, before the bullets start flying. Right? Grace and peace to you. We love you. Look forward to next week. Bye-bye.